Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here in person with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. And Martin Collier. Hi Barney. Yes folks, we are recording in our London office for the first time in 18 months and we're delighted to be joined by the wonderful Richard Williams. Welcome Richard. Hi Barney. Hi Mark. <laughs> Hi Martin. Nice to be with you again. Good to be Richard, you were a wonderful guest when you came in, I think, about two years ago. So I really recommend episode 41 <laughs> to anyone listening to this. Today we're going to focus on two box sets that are being released this month. One that collects the first seven albums by the late Laura Nero and the other a Beach Boys set called Feel Flows, which focuses on the Sunflower and Surf's Up albums from 1970 and 71. Let's start with Laura, whom you've written extensively about, Richard. You did one of the pieces we have on the homepage this week, is your 1971 piece about her rehearsing for BBC Two's In Concert programme in London. When did you first become aware of Laura Nero? When Eli and the 13th Confession came out, which I think was probably early 69, I remember having a week off work from being ill and I got, I bought Eli and the 13th Confession, which came in its English sleeve, which wasn't nearly as nice as the American sleeve, I discovered. Of course. Neither did it have the perfumed insert. <laughs> um, it actually had a perfumed insert. It did. So, <laughs> so that Laura's insistence. Right? So I was able to appreciate it, sort of undistracted by these um, fripperies. And I spent a week listening to that album and kind of internalising it, metabolising it. And I thought it was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever heard, and I still do. So that was how I encountered her. Sounds about right. Mm. And um, you first wrote about her in, what, 7071? I mean, I know you saw the Festival Hall show. Oh. I did, I have the ticket here. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, oh. Saturday the 6th of February 1971, an evening with Laura Nero at 50. the Royal Festival Hall. £1.50. I didn't pay, I had to say. It was free. <laughs> um, row F, seat 7. Um, <laughs> Do and, love the uh, details. And of course it was an evening not just with Laura Nero, but with her boyfriend at the time, who was Jackson Brown, who was the oh. support act and who was pretty well unknown at the time to the general audience for sure but who came on and did a perfectly nice acoustic set you know, did, I remember he did Rock Me on the Water and a few things like that and then she did her set at the piano looking very dramatic in a, some sort was of... Was it a solo piano. piano did she have a band with her? No, no, absolutely solo right. and it was, it was pretty fabulous and it was quite a you know, it was, it was full, people were waiting f- for it, this, a certain kind of person, you know, the sort of person who went down to buy their imports at one stop on South Moulton Street and there were quite a lot of those people then and it was, I think I reviewed it for the Times and it was marvellous, I loved it and then she came back a little while later for the in concert uh, BBC <laughs> 2 He's waving another <laughs> and an artifact to the in concert I have recording. a ticket for that too at the <sighs> TV theatre on Lime Grove. Don't you ever throw anything away, Richard? Not a lot, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, things like that. The detail I love from that is that if you're in camera range for the BBC, you got paid ten bob as a member of the audience. Can I go back and claim for that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't They'll ask you for your equity card. <laughs> so all those people in all those BBC concerts, like Joni Mitchell and James Taylor, the yeah. front row yeah. got ten bob? Yeah. Amazing. The sad thing about that 
concert is that it was marvellous. It was only, I think it was half an hour or maybe 40 minutes. It wasn't certainly no longer than that, but it was her solo, again, in front of a small audience in the TV theatre. Really great, very intimate. And it was absolutely, you know, full-on, 100% Laura Nero. And it was wiped. Of course. Uh, and, it yeah, of course. and it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I went to quite a lot of trouble to try and see if anything survived from it. I... I um, got in touch with Stanley Dorfman, who was the producer, who's in retirement in Los Angeles, and he, frankly, could barely remember it, certainly didn't have a copy of it, and there appears to be no copy yeah. anywhere, which is pretty amazing, because there's usually a copy of everything somewhere. Yes. Mm. I mean, the BBC this. did wipe an awful lot of stuff. Sure they did. Um, I mean, I, I worked there as a porter for a while, this is back in the late 70s, and it, it was a policy even then... To, uh, particularly audio stuff to get rid of it mm. um, just wipe over the tapes and reuse them yeah. and certain engineers made it their business to nick stuff yeah. you know or, or, or get a dupe copy take yeah. home yeah. but they, they did they did. well I remember my, my dad uh, there was a little a place called Melodisc around the corner from us in Covent Garden and if they listened to a goon show they would cut an acetate of it right so when they came to find the things that the BBC had wiped some people had acetates of these, yeah. of mm. these goon shows. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, well, they were wiping as early as the 60s, because when Albert Isler played at the LSE in 1967, um, you know, that, that was done for a TV series, a jazz, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. jazz Goes to College. And that was wiped immediately, partly because they thought... It was Albert Isler. Because it wasn't standard was shown, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God. So, back to Laura. Right. Laura, I, I mean... Can you explain why you think Laura is so great? I mean, I happen to agree with you, but we're here with two men who Skeptics. don't, don't like Resistant. Laura Nero. And, and she uh -huh. seems to be quite divisive. Yeah. I mean, I was saying to Mark this morning, I think if, if you really immerse yourself in her work, then a voice that can sound quite melodramatic and, and sort of shrill and sort of pop operatic still sounds still sounds like that to, to Mark <laughs> but I love it now and I get it to me it makes sense in the context of what she's doing so I mean look music is always a subjective experience mm. but how how would you try and sell Laura to a Laura skeptic yeah music's subjective except there's right and wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah I well, think we know we cite the library for um how would you sell hmm. um I think you have to understand that, you know, she came out of a New York culture which included the Brill Building songs, the sort of great uptown soul stuff that was being written by Goffin and King and Man and Wile and, and Barry and Greenwich. And, and she sang all and those Backrack songs, and didn't David. She? she did. She loved all that. And, the do you know, she, she grew up singing doo-wop as well as studying you know, music formally. So she had all that. And I, I just... I, I, I think I heard all that straight away. And also, you know, there's a bit of Broadway show yeah. in her, which I think is part of the thing that puts people off, or they think they're being put off by it, you know. Um, uh, one day they'll see the point. <laughs> see the I dig that. You'll have see your say in a moment. <laughs> and it, it's true that, you know, that her voice can make people feel uncomfortable. There is a, a, a skip between the registers you know, between the contralto and the soprano registers. Joni Mitchell has a bit of the same thing, but much softer. It puts some people on edge. Never, I have to say it never did that to me in her case. It's dramatic, 
some people would say melodramatic, but I like that sense of drama. And I love her use of words. You know, she made up words, she linked words together in unusual ways. And I found that, you know, fascinating. And, she, you know, she, there's a kind of poetry in, in the music as well as the words, and they fit together very well. And she had terrific musicianship. Oh, yeah. And she loved good musicians. So, you know, her, her records and her bands were full of good musicians. And, you know, she made all that work together. Uh, so, And also, you know, she could write something like Wedding Bell Blues, which is an irresistible option. Yeah. I totally agree. I have the copy here on the table of New York Tenderbury, which I bought when I was like, I don't know, 15 or something. And I wasn't ready for Laura Nero then. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly am now. And I love those records. So this, this company, Madfish, whoever they are, you may know, are packaged together her first seven albums. So that's everything from More Than A New Discovery, which was on Verve. Yeah to Nested, yeah. uh, and nothing after that. I don't know if they're yeah. planning a kind of second box, but I think that's some of the, in, in between, bookended between those two, some of the greatest American pop music that I, that, that I know. Mm. I really do. Charlie Colello, we should mention, the arranger on Eli. On Eli, yeah, and he came mm. back to work with her later on as well. Charlie Colello was on, you know, Charlie yeah. Colello was one of those people who was never on a bad record. <laughs> it's just, it's just yeah. you know, find me a record that, has, that is arranged or produced by Charlie Colella. Well, including can... Native New Yorker by Odyssey. There you are, you see? <laughs> one of and, the greatest and disco all, You know, the Four Seasons stuff he did, yeah. you know, and he was just one of those great people. Yeah, yeah. A fellow champion of hers, Ian MacDonald, actually writes in, in another of the pieces we're going to be featuring. He says... She's better than Joni Mitchell. I would make that argument that she's better than Joni Mitchell. I don't know if you've got a that competition. Far. And I think people. It might people be. Still <laughs> we can make it a competition. <laughs> it's yeah. like there has yeah. been this whole kind of is Joni Mitchell better than Bob Dylan kind of thing going on at the moment in social media. But didn't get the props because she's a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, famously, Bob went up to her when they shared a bill and said, Joni, you make me sound like a hillbilly. Um, and she was famously really pissed off when they played uh, their records side by side. He just made Planet Waves and she just made Caught and Spark, yeah. which she knew was a better record than Planet Waves in the scheme of things. So, <laughs> anyway, I don't know why I went off on that tangent. No, but. no, that's, that's absolutely fine. So, and Richard, you saw Laura's first show here in London mm. and you saw her last show. And the last one, the Union yeah. Chapel. Were you yeah. at that? No, I'm, I, I, I don't know why I wasn't at mm. that, but I was. Yeah. When was that? Uh, 94, and then she died 97. How did it sound? Because I mean, Union Chapel's a really tricky space acoustically. I mean, it was her and three, I think it was three women singers. Right. Which she, was how she presented herself in the, in the last years. Mm -hmm. Three women singing, singing harmonies. And it was fine. The sound was perfect for that. Great. Because it's an acoustic yeah, space. Yeah. So it was just her piano and four voices. And she'd sort of settled into. Everything that she did, everything that she was. Mm -hmm. you know, I saw her 
I saw her as well. I saw her in a in a hotel lounge. It's somewhere in America, and I, I can't remember where it was. It was like in Philadelphia or Indianapolis or somewhere a bit earlier in the nineties. Same format, I think, with two women singers, mm-hmm. with a you know very small audience of kind of passing businessmen, which was <laughs> weird. Yeah. Um, but she'd found a way of incorporating everything she'd ever done. So she could do the, you know, the doo-wop stuff and the Carol King songs and, and her own most demanding things and, you know, really make it sound like one, one music. It was lovely. And that Union Chapel gig, anybody who was there, sorry, Barney, yeah. was, you know, we'll never forget that. It was lovely. Yeah, I, I, I remember, uh, I think, commissioning Rob Steen to review it for Mojo and he did one of the last interviews with her uh-huh. here yeah. in London so we're featuring that as well December 93 and he addresses one of the issues that you know Nero fans will be aware of which is decided that she kind of walked away from from fame or never wanted it in the first place um, and he says that Laura sounds a mite offended at the perceived slight. And she says, the life of an artist stretches over a whole lifetime. It just takes its course. I do have a little more freedom these days, but I don't want to give the impression that I had a child and just stopped working altogether. It's just that things kind of mellowed. Mm. Well, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's an understatement in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, um, but, it's, but a, it's a very mature assessment of, of her own... Uh, of her own life and career, I would say, and that's what happened to her. And yeah. she did she did retreat, if you want to see it in those terms. I don't think you know the. I don't think she. Hmm, I wouldn't say she'd been treated unkindly by the music business, but she, you know, she certainly didn't have the kind of acclaim and record sales that that the publicity she had initially would have suggested she was going to get. So I don't think walking away was all that difficult. But I think it certainly suited her because she, she brought up a son, then she formed new relationships. Um, she had, a, you know, her last long relationship with a woman. Um, yes. And that affected, you know, her, her songwriting. It, all those things affected her songwriting in, in lots of ways. So it became less like a box of fireworks exploding, yeah. for sure. Yes, um, exactly. But that happens to lots of artists, doesn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah. But, yeah, but I listen to those late albums now with enormous pleasure, and there are some, you know, wonderful songs on them, um, like you know, like the light or those things, the very late things are beautiful. Yeah, you wrote a piece on your blog, The Blue Moment, back in 2014, when that album by Billy Child yeah. came out and so you had another chance to write about Laura's music and very interesting people on that, doing interesting versions. Of really it. interesting people, you know, it has um, Ricky Lee Jones and Renee Fleming, you know, that's yes. kind of yes. Wayne Shorter is like Esperanza Sporting, all kinds of people. Yeah. And I and Alison Krauss and Jerry Douglas. Indeed so. And I approached it with some caution thinking, well, this is probably not a very good idea. But actually, Billy Charles, who's a jazz pianist and arranger, made a wonderful job of it, I thought, and, you know, turned it, turned, turned it into a great listening experience. But um, <laughs> it doesn't replace Laura's albums, but it's a very nice uh, adjunct. To sort them. of commentary on Yeah, and maybe ways. it would bring yeah. a few people from other directions towards her music as well. Well, uh, looking at me there, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm giving up on Pringle. So my problem is, uh, I, 
is that I really often love the pieces written about Laura and Ira. And in fact, Richard's Nero. Is called, Nero. <laughs> Richard's is great. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a fabulous Ian MacDonald piece too. And so I read the pieces. I read them, you know, this has been going on for about 30 years now. Every time I read a piece, I then go and listen. And I just, it sounds overblown and unfinished at the same time to me, her music. There is a looseness there. Yeah, the, the, and I the, don't get it because I love, I love all those. Yeah, I love all the the Brill Building stuff, the yeah. Goffin and King. That a lot of her influences I, I really like, and I do know that the songs. It's that terrible thing, and I hate it when people say it about Dylan. Oh, I, yeah, no, but I prefer them done by other people. But actually, in this case, I really do. Okay. I, I like the Fifth Dimensions. I like oh, Barbra yeah. Streisand and Stony End. Stony End's a great. They're great songs. Yeah, not and also, the songs. No. Richard's really? just sitting there shaking his head. <laughs> I know. More than sorrow than that. Yeah. I often appall Richard with my... Um, Which we have a counsellor on hand <laughs> after this. Um, but, I, but, you know, it's great. It's a Stone Soul Picnic, let, let us surrey. Let us surrey down to yeah. Stone Soul Picnic. That's not a word, but it's kind of great. And you get... and So I do understand yeah. all of those things. I just don't like a voice. And yeah. I, I yeah. can't... And, you know, uh, there's a bit in um, Ian McDonald's bit where he says, Laura Nero's hard to listen to. Her music, a fiery fusion of gospel and white soul, twines around itself like a vine trapped between two brick walls, fighting upwards towards the light. Come on, come on and surrender And I, I think that I just don't like the sound of the vine struggling through the brick oh, walls. Fair enough. I don't think we're going to get any. There's no Damascene <laughs> moment here from Messrs. But Collier next time I read a, a piece about Laura Nero, I will absolutely go and listen again. And so, you've got the pronunciation right at that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, True. I mean, one we're of the, on points, the way. One of the points that people always make about Laura also is that she was sort of out of step with the kind of hippie counterculture. And it's sort of ironic in a way that Jackson Brown is her boyfriend at that point. She had nothing to do, to do with... She didn't even want to be on Geffen's label, mm. Asylum. She refused to go to Asylum. Um, and you, you allude to this boyfriend who's, like, in the green room or whatever at the in-concert taping. You mm. don't mention that it's Jackson. <laughs> oh, no, that, it, well, that wasn't Jackson. Oh, it wasn't no. Jackson. No, she changed boyfriends okay. when she came back for the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was, I can't that, remember his name, but I okay. think he was an Italian-American. Oh, okay. A very, very young guy. Um, well, right. so was Jackson. Yeah. Um, so was she, yeah. uh, one should point out. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think he lasted very long. He certainly wasn't the guy she married. No, no, no. Geffen sort of... Rescued her after the, the the disaster of Monterey, as it's perceived. Yeah, as it's perceived. As it's um, perceived. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we the truth. You know, it's not true. Where really. is where is the truth? Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was on the bill at Monterey on the Saturday afternoon, and she came prepared to put on a show. Mm-hmm. So she had the musicians from the Wrecking Crew, the the LA session guys, who actually were also playing with the Mamas and the Puppets yes, and, right. and other people. Yeah. So they were probably there already. But but know, she wasn't Janis Joplin. She was not Janis Joplin. No. She wasn't Jimi Hendrix. You know, she didn't set fire to her piano. Um, uh, Strangely, and, and it's quite uh, hard to set fire to a piano. Jerry uh, Lewis <laughs> tried. <laughs> I think Yoko probably did that once. Actually, in yeah. her flux estate. <laughs> didn't Martin Carthy and Bob Dylan chop up a piano uh, for, firewood. for firewood? So <laughs> there you are. Brilliant. Got it. That's absolutely brilliant. 
Well, look, so anyway, it's, so difficult, huh? it's American Dreamer is what the box is called. And it is released by Mad Fish in the next like week or yeah, so. Yeah, and there's an album of, I think there's an eighth album of um, oh, rarities, sort of okay. mono mixes of singles. Well, I know that Martin and Mark will be and buying it for that alone. <laughs> Right, we've got enough digs in it then. Borrow them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about another box set now. So, the latest in a sort of series of Beach Boys boxes is is also about to come out. It's called Feel Flows, and it focuses on the Sunflower album from 1970 and the Surf's Up album from 1971. So, again, there's you know there's demos, there's outtakes. I love this Beach Boys. I love this period of the Beach Boys. I, you reviewed Surf's Up for Melody Make, and we have that mm. on RBP, mm. and it is a really rave review. I think you describe Feel Flows, the song, as you say, you'll love Carl's two songs with words by Jack Riley. Feel Flows and Long Promised Road are simply the best inner quest songs I've heard. And you also say you love Bruce Johnston's Disney Girls 1957. I think it stands up as a bit of a masterpiece, Surf's Up. How do you, how do you hear it after all these years? Oh, the masterpiece to me. Really? Um, yeah. 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 I mean, if I had to, probably if I had to. Um, to identify one piece of music that single-handedly justifies white pop music, um, <laughs> it would be it would be Surf's Up. Surf's I think. Up Before it came out, I was phoned by Jack Riley, and it, the, the, it's interesting they put Sunflower and Surf's Up together because actually that represents a kind of hinge moment. Surf's Up came well, Sunflower. Um, was their first album for Warner Brothers and sold Zilch, having been fiddled around with a lot because Warner Brothers, you know, were very nervous of it, having given the Beach Boys quite a lot of money. And their own um, label, of course. And their own label, yeah. Brother Records. And it's a, it's a lovely record, but, you know, with some, you know, This Whole World is a classic, Slip On Through is a classic, you know. But people didn't realise it at the time. And it was packaged in a slightly cheesy way but then and and their manager at the time was a man called Nick Grillo um, who wasn't there for very long but then along came this guy called Jack Riley very strange man Um, he (laughs) He met at Brian's health food restaurant the Radiant Radish yeah I mean if you want to believe any of these stories that's what he's (laughs) on he he interviewed Brian for his he was a radio DJ at the time he interviewed Brian and then he recognised very shrewdly that the Beach Boys, you know, needed putting back on or, or putting on some sort of more interesting track than the one they were on. And he'd, you know, seen that they were interested, you know, Mike Love and Brian were interested in transcendental meditation and there was a bit of vegetarianism going on and a bit of early ecological awareness. And he apparently wrote a six-page letter detailing what he could do for the Beach Boys to Brian, and Brian bought it, and he persuaded some of the rest of the group were more or less persuaded to go along with it. And Jack Riley really was responsible for Surf's Up, because he, he, he knew Surf's Up was a, a lost masterpiece from the great lost masterpiece of Smile. You know, yeah. it, and, but there had been rumours about Surf's Up for years because Brian had sung it on a Leonard Bernstein TV show yeah. in 1967, mm. solo, it sung part of it. Yeah. And Bernstein had said, this is amazing. And it was amazing, you know, and, uh, and it, that's probably there on YouTube still. It's a beautiful thing. Yes, sir. 
So it was known about, but Jack Riley had the intelligence to say, OK, let's take this lost masterpiece, restore it, finish it, and make it the centrepiece of, an, of their next album. And have Carl sing it. And have, yeah, but some of Brian's vocal is on some there as well. Mm-hmm. Brian's original vocal. And it's a wonderful arrangement. You know, it's, it's an amazing song. Yeah. You know, Van Dyke Parks' lyric is just beyond anything. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And the album is also full of lots of songs like don't you know it starts with don't go near the water which is a pretty odd thing for a beach boys album <laughs> <laughs> um, never thought of that and it, <laughs> and it has it has a terrible track called student demonstration yeah, time, that's that's the only is, real block which, which is, is actually was a single wasn't it that that, that was it was that yeah, was a set, hit yeah yeah uh, no, it wasn't a hit. Wasn't it? No, it wasn't a hit. Um, I seem to remember it's on the and radio. It's, it's the Mike Love's rewrite of Riot on Cell Block number nine. Yeah. Um, with a lot of pretty naff words. But you can see, you know, they were. You can see why it's there because it was, you know, a nod to Kent State. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, and did, was it Jack Riley who booked them into the Big Sur Folk Festival? Yep. And he, he, he sort of realigned them in terms of live performance. He put them on at Carnegie Hall as well. And then. In that sort of run of shows in 1971, they finished with sharing the bill with the Grateful Dead at Fillmore East in New York. Now, a year earlier, that would have been unthinkable. Mm-hmm. You know, the Beach Boys were an oldies act. Yeah. But, but he somehow pushed them into contemporaneity. Um, into the, and they were more or less accepted. And Surf's Up did get very good reviews. Mm. And Riley's contribution was not just to do that... Um, but was to write the lyrics for Feel Flows uh, and Long Promised Road to, you know, Feel Flows. One of them's written by Carl, the other's written by, the tune by Brian. And they were quite sort of advanced, interesting productions and certainly the lyrics, you know, a, a step. They're sort of in parallel to what Van Dyke Parks had been doing. Uh, uh, sort of so he more, judged the kind of feel, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. And, and of course he, he did... Does, the vocal one. Uh, the day in, the a, a Day in the Life of yeah. the Tree, yeah. which is another kind of climate awareness song, which he wrote the lyric to and sang, which I think, you know, that last, that closing three songs on Surf's Up, Day in the Life of the Tree, Till I Die, Brian's great song, and Surf's Up, that's an amazing way to finish an album. Yeah. You know, actually, I would guess a lot of people probably never even got there, sadly. You know, Beach Boy sceptics who started off with Don't Go Near the Water. But it's... Um, those are three, three marvelous tracks. I mean, the sort of backstory in a way to this, or the theme of this, is like how the Beach Boys survived yeah. Brian's kind of breakdown. Yeah. Really, yeah. when many would have thought, "Well, that's it." If yeah. Brian's kind of lost the plot, yeah. that's probably it for the Beach yeah, Boys. Yeah. Well, and they went on to prove that that was really not the case. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, Riley's big thing was to try and bring Brian back into active participation Uh, and you know he did that semi-successfully with with surfs up but then he he had a 
The motives for this will never be known because he's dead now. He died in about six or seven years ago. But he took the whole band to Holland. And a and their studio. studio, yeah. And their very sophisticated studio yeah, yeah. and their engineer and everything and their families. And that was his idea, to relocate the Beach Boys to the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> They've got water the, the great running down the streets. And, they, went, and, they, the canals. and <laughs> they went along with it. And, of course, it was hugely expensive. Yeah. You know, I mean, can you imagine what Warner Brothers must have thought? But they all went, and they produced that album, Holland, you know, which has some great thrash yeah, yeah. on it. I love as well. Yeah, yeah no, I love Holland. Jack Riley got, while they were recording it, Jack Riley got Brian Wilson to ring me up from Holland to sing me that children's thing that comes on an EP. Mount Vernon. Mount Freeway. Fairway. 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 You know. So, you know, I think that, that was Jack Riley's folly. And he he carried on with them and did um, Carl and the Passion So Tough. I think did that with them and then was kind of. It was interesting that period where because Dennis had kind of stepped up as a writer oh, yeah. and Carl had contributed yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce Johnson obviously came in, mm-hmm. um, but also they were they amalgamate they pulled in two new members. Ricky, R- Ricky Fatar and Blondie Chaplin, Chaplin from who actually sings Sail on Sail, Sail on I Sail, think. which is one of the great yeah. yes. Um, and it's so funny that the group could absorb all this from yeah. from being yeah. a, a set, you know a surf group to Brian's group yeah. to this kind of um, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it, it worked as it, well. It's interesting in the Bruce Johnston audio we can listen to clips of in a minute. He keeps referring to the fact they're a vocal group. They aren't a band as such at all in the sort of conventional sense. And it, that probably allows that yeah. in a way that it, if they were a, actually a musical aggregation with yeah. bass with and drums and guitar and all that. But of course it. they'd had Hal Blaine and yes, Joe yes, Osborne yeah. and Larry Knackle um, playing on the record sure. right from the start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They were, they yeah. Were, were but the actual dynamic of the group is about them as singers rather than yeah. as musicians. Yeah. 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 And maybe yeah. that allows for that kind yeah. of yeah. spread of... I, I should just Reinvention. add about Jack Riley that he was, in the sense, he, I mean, he was a charlatan in some senses. He professed to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with broadcast journalist with NBC. Not true, and there mm-hmm. were other stories as well. Yeah. Again, in the audience, Mike Love sneers at some of their management. No, no names, but you know, they had a couple of managers who just were, were no good after Murray and after Capital, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that, that's. Probably who Mike Love's referring oh, to. I'm sure he would be, yeah. I should think he hated him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even um, though he'd yeah. actually turned their career around. Yeah, he had. But not in probably not in the way that Mike Love would yeah. have He's turned it around <laughs> left to himself. Yes. I mean, in a way, Mike, you know, the justification of Mike Love came at Wembley Stadium on Midsummer's Day in 1975. Do you know that story of the Elton John gig? It was an Elton John stadium gig, beautiful day, June the 21st, 1975. And the bill was, somebody at the bottom of the bill, I can't remember, but then it was Rufus. Then it was the Eagles, who were pretty much unknown at the time. Mm -hmm. I think they'd had one album out. Then the Beach Boys, then Elton John, who was premiering, I think it was Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, I think. And he was going to do the whole album for the first time and nobody would really heard it. Was it, or was it, was it? Maybe it was that one. Uh, anyway, I don't know, because like almost everybody, I left after the Beach Boys. Because, <laughs> because the Beach Boys, several things, they got that magic hour at the end of a beautiful, yeah, yeah. perfect, perfect hey, summer right, afternoon. Right, right. You know, when they started in wonderful sunshine, doing Catch a Wave, um, <laughs> and 
then you know the sun suddenly started to go and it was beautiful beautiful twilight that magic hour mm-hmm. that everybody wants when they play on a festival and it was they played for like you know, getting on for two hours, and it was just incredible. It was everything you, without Brian, I have to say. Right. You know, Mike Love fronting them, doing lots of oldies, mm-hmm. doing, you know, I can't, they certainly didn't do Heroes and Villains. So. <laughs> <laughs> and by the, when they finished, everybody was exhausted, exhausted with happiness. Yeah. And probably, you know, 30,000 people stayed on, but certain 30,000 people also left. Um, so it was poor old Elton. Anyway, that was a great moment in their history, actually. Uh, right, but but right. that was the kind of oldies version of the Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it, it, the Beach Boys. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday, Mark. There's, in a sense, there's like there's two Beach Boys, aren't there? There's this sort of there's Mike Love's mm. Beach Boys, which is really about the oldies, the old yep. surf hits, yep. and, and good times, just that Music. good times, nostalgia, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's a, I'm, one might almost call it the Republican Beach Boys. One and might. then there's the more there's the sort of geeks or Democrats Beach Boys, which which of course is much more interesting to me. Yeah. Not that I don't love those early surf hits, but maybe we should hear the voice of Mike Love, often sort of you know painted as the villain of the. Of the Beach Boys. <laughs> well, well Here it's a story. We were talking about. I mean, you were saying, well, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm isn't as bad as everyone makes out. And then you listened to this interview, and you said he's every bit as bad as. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, actually, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about. Should we talk about the, his his interview for, for, for a moment? I mean, because it, it, it's it's quite short, and it's John Tobler in 1976, and it's quite impossible. He basically refu- is trying to refuse to answer any questions that John Tobler asks him. In a very sort of like full of himself start, sort of way, starts off admiring a Chinese girl walking down the street and goes in to see how he loves Oriental girls, which is frankly revolting. <laughs> uh, he, he talks about David Marks, which is interesting, and Al Jardine, Al Jardine leaving the band to become a dentist and then coming back <laughs> into the band again, which I thought was a really good thing. Tober asked him about Murray Wilson, and he doesn't really answer the question, but he goes into the thing about how Murray Wilson gotten contracted to Capitol Records and what he called indentured servitude, which is less for listen. They used to have indentured servitude, remember that? Yeah. 1700s or something, you leave England, you go to the work in the cotton fields for a while. But then they, in, in the 1961, they called it an indentured servitude, a Capitol Records recording contract. And uh, we, we were uh, uh, living in that, under that miserable... Uh, Yes. Spectre for about, uh, and I don't mean Phil, for about <laughs> how many years? I mean, nine years, eight yeah. years. Finally got out of that. Finally got out of that and into a decent contract with a respectable record company. One that's not a flagrant prostitute of our beautiful art. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> prostitution of our beautiful art. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear. Yeah. Mike Love sounding so bitter about Capitol Records at that point. Well, that's probably true about the deal that... that yeah. That certainly is true yeah. about the deal Murray Wilson negotiated with Capitol. Of course. But Mike Love is also the person who just before... In February, just before the pandemic, took his Beach Boys to play to some kind of convention of a, a trophy hunting company. <laughs> um, Oh, at, at which the keynote speech was given by Donald Trump Jr. Oh, God. Oh, it's um, I, mean, I love Sean O'Hagan, you know, the High Lamas. Um, mm. He was a huge influence by the Beach Boys. Mm. He, he was actually down to produce them at one point. That, that he was flown out to meet them. And Bruce Johnson actually picked him up at the airport and, you know, 
I'm the guy you got to talk to. Everyone else, you just, <laughs> I'm the guy you got to talk to. And at one point, Sean's—I'm going to get Sean to tell the story on the podcast himself. He's in the dressing; they're playing it after the end of the football game in some stadium, in, in, and they're in the dressing room, and he's talking to one of them. I think it probably was Bruce Johnson, and Bruce Johnson's being fantastic. You read about Mike Love, at which point a locker opens, and Mike Love steps out of the locker. He'd been sitting in the locker meditating. <laughs> And they played. They played to an empty football stadium. And that's the sort of Republican yeah. Beach Boys. The weirdest Beach Boys gig I ever went to was at Grosvenor House in the ballroom of the Grosvenor House on Park Lane, 1977. <laughs> the CBS Records International Convention, at which they would fill you know every room in the Grosvenor House with people from all over the world. They had salesmen and you know people affiliates. And have, every night they would have a concert with their artists. And one night they had the Beach Boys. Unbelievable. That was, and they flew the Beach Boys in just to play to their salesmen <laughs> in, the, in the basement ballroom of the Grand House. Quite a nice place. And, I, and Brian was there, and that was the first time I'd seen Brian live with the rest of the Beach Boys. They, they, they played a shit like a half an hour, no more. But I do remember there was a moment when Mike Love physically elbowed Brian aside, and it was one of those Diana Ross, Mary Wilson moments, you know, that... Yeah, 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 yeah. 25th, the Motown anniversary anniversary show. And it was... and I mean, the the vibe there was uh, palpable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is in a way a good moment to talk about the whole Brian is back kind of, you know... Uh, movement of the mid 70s and I wondered whether Mark we could listen yes. to uh, Bruce Johnston talking precisely a- about abs- that issue a- absolutely well it's kind of about that but also about them becoming effectively an oldies band I think everybody's waiting around for Brian Wilson to be brilliant again in public and uh, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again, but what I'd like to point out is, isn't it amazing that uh, there's a band in rock and roll that still has the original people making records and going on the road and uh, selling out? And, for instance, a few nights ago we had 56,000 people in Copenhagen. I don't think you always have to, I don't think you have to keep topping yourself there's always more of a buzz when a band's new and you're discovering it. You know, you've got uh, specials or when the police were new. That was very exciting in America. Or the pretenders right now in the States. You've always had that new thing, but you can't ever compete with that. Guess I keep a hold on my sorrow. I've got to feel now all that you see. Nineteen eighty, so that's hence the references yes. yeah, yeah, to those. Yeah. Eyes. I mean, I mean, there is a sort of grim re- realism to what he's saying in a, in, a, in a way, but I mean, it, it is also an acceptance of a sort of barrenness. I mean, he just produced their "Keeping the Summer Alive" album at this point. Um, uh, I mean, he's very interesting about his own role in the band. He's basically a part-time member. He, came, mm. you know, he first of all came goes. to replace Brian Wilson. That was his, yeah. his job. 
But he he spent the next sort of twenty years coming and going from the band in a very kind of peculiar sort of way. Um, well, he was quite a successful songwriter, wasn't he? he wrote I write the songs for Barry Manilow. That's the, well, David Cassidy. Um, he produced the David produced, Cassidy album, and he had an earlier career with Terry Melcher as Bruce okay. and Terry. Bruce that's right, making, making surf yeah. records. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a bit about Bruce when Joel, Joel Selvin was a guest, yeah. and you know, there's this yeah. infamous story that. Bruce Johnson and Kim Fowley went down to Dolphins of Hollywood, which is not in Hollywood, and saw John Dolphin yep. murdered by one of his songwriters. Uh, <laughs> Bruce was there. You wouldn't know that yeah. meeting Bruce Johnston. But he's an interesting guy, yeah. you know. I mean, he was born into enormous wealth, of course, so that's a strange kind of factor in the story. His yeah. songs on, on these two albums that we've been talking about, Sunflower and, and mm-hmm. Surf's Up, his songs always sound anomalous to me. Disney, yes. Disney Girls and, yes. right. and yeah. Deirdre. You know, they sound like they belong in somewhere else, some, like a carpenter's album. Yeah. 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 Alongside I mean, not the clouds agreed, I love or something. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. But, but, but you're right. I mean, in the sense that comes in with him writing with David Cassidy and people like that. Yeah. It is a certain sort of white pop, West Coast pop, you know. Yeah. Um, you can say, well, you say that's what the Beach Boys were, but they weren't. They were, you know, they had this this other thing going. No, yeah, yeah. He's he's very interesting. He talks about relationships in the band. He's so, he's basically trying to tell t- tell Toby, this is nineteen eighty, that everything's wonderful. Uh, whilst you can just listen to him saying it, you sort of don't believe it while he's while he's also saying keeping it. the summer alive is a slightly desperate title for an album, isn't mm. it? Well, they did a lot of that. <laughs> but it was, hu- of... it was huge, huge hit. No, it? that was the endless summer. Endless album. summer. Oh, that was sorry. a compilation. You're right. You're right. Which you're right. I know, keeping the summer alive. Terrible. To yeah. time with American Graffiti yeah. was it? Or yeah. there well, was some kind. It, ro- it rode that way. Well, it rode as that way. Yeah, yeah. But we should hear the second clip where I think he's talking about Dennis, isn't he? Yeah. Yes. Let's have a listen to that. Is there some kind of discord between Dennis and other parts of the group? Believe me, if there were, he wouldn't be here. If there was discord between Mike and the band, Mike wouldn't be here, or myself. Uh, Dennis happened to meet a very nice lady in the last year, and he's been seeing a lot of her and taking a lot of trips with her, and it's Christine McVie from Fleetwood. He missed a couple tours and went on camping trips, you know, with her, but but he is here. For reality, it's not for me, and it makes me laugh. Oh, fantasy world and Disney girls, I'm coming back. <laughs> you see what I mean? You, know, you just got to read between the lines of all of Went on camping trips yeah. oh. from Sleepwood. I don't <laughs> from. <laughs> That's a town in Essex. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he he talks about he's he's got the tapes of Smile in his house, which is is interesting interesting to hear that. He was sort of the custodian. Yeah. Archivist at this point. Um, he talks about. It's actually, I'm sorry, I apologise. I got it wrong. It's him that talks about band's management problems, and he says that he really likes their current manager, Jerry Schilling, who's part of the, the Memphis, Memphis Mafia, the elder yeah. sort of scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy playing the hits, which we've just pretty much heard, and he talks about you know what things he'd like to do. I mean, he you know he's an articulate, you know, smooth. Front man, you know, but but I mean that, that last clip's great because it really just sort of kind of all you need to know about yeah. what's going on. I mean, I I went to LA to interview the sort of fiftieth anniversary Beach Boys for for Mojo, and Bruce Johnston was 
easily the friendliest of them. So, I mean, it was this very, very disarming experience of sitting with five of them, including David Marks, who'd been brought back in. And, and having Brian sitting next to Mike was one of the most surreal experiences I've had. Mm-hmm. But Bruce was, was, was sort of like the diplomat. And I, and I remember him taking me aside and sitting down and playing Tears in the Morning on the piano in the studio and he and he said that sunflower was his favorite post pet sounds album probably because he's, he's sort of all over it you know <laughs> um, but uh and i remember these exquisitely tasseled sort of italian loafers he was wearing he just driven down from santa barbara in his bentley you know it was like it was it was a real window into yeah. into the world of was the it the jack riley period when I don't know if it's even true that, that somebody suggested they drop the boys from their name and just be called The Beach. That, <laughs> yes. that, that, that gets actually mentioned in the, the, the Mike Love interview. Uh, he does, he talks, talks about that. It wasn't a serious thing. Yeah. It was, it, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. I spent a day at Brian's house in 1973, I think, Did when you? he was about... 18 stone, pretty much. Oh, my God. Because I I got quite friendly with Marilyn, his first wife, because I think I'd interviewed her when she was in a group called Spring or American Spring. American Spring, Spring yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was Spring in America. Spring, right. Detroit Spinners. Which she, she and her sister, Diane, were, they yeah. were Spring. And she invited me, I was in Los Angeles or something or other, she said, come over. Yes, please. So I went to the famous house in Bellagio Road, and the piano and the sandbox were still there. Uh, and I had the full sort of middle period Brian Wilson experience. That's extraordinary. I mean, he was extra- I mean, he was charming, but not quite there. Mm-hmm. Yes. He, he did what I'd hoped he'd do, which was go to the jukebox and play Be My Baby for me about 20 times, as if I'd never heard it before. <laughs> But that was part of his daily ritual, clearly. And then we had dinner. And all I remember were giant cans of Ready Whip. Do you know what Ready Whip is? Yes, yeah, a kind of, of cool. spray cream spray thing. Cream. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, sugar, thing, which was sort of, you know pink and white, which was sprayed on everything. Extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. and, and anyway, it was a funny day. <laughs> and he Didn't sang. He went to the piano. He did something lovely. He sang his arrangement of Shortening Bread, which <laughs> turned up on one of their late albums on one of their. Uh, yes. Like keeping the summer alive, or MIT, or MTI, or whatever it is. Um, uh, and it's, love, it's a beautiful arrangement. Um, uh, a kind of give me some loving treatment. And to have that happen to you. Yes. Pretty, and isn't that a house amazing. where quite a lot of sunflower was recorded? Last year, didn't wasn't he upstairs in the bedroom, and they they set up a kind of place to record so that he could be near. Down, I can't yeah. remember which and he would come down occasionally yeah. and play it. 
I can't the Moog synthesizer. <laughs> I, I can't imagine he was going too far from the house at that no, no, bed. Take the studio to Brian. So we're going to move on from the world of the Beach Boys, partly because we're talking about the Beach Boys. The featured writer is a Californian woman called Diane Stillman, whose book Twenty Nine Palms is just being reissued. That's a fascinating book. I read it not long after it came out. I think it was from two thousand one. It's about the murders of two young girls in in um, 29 Palms in the the Mojave Desert by a disturbed Marine who had returned to the giant military base there in the California desert. And she's written brilliantly about uh, about California and uh, recently joined RBP. One of the pieces is about surf. It's about the return of surf. So I'll just (laughs) mention that. From the New York Times in September 1990, uh, it's not just the surfer look that's enjoying a vogue, it's the entire surfer aesthetic, whether it's in movies, art, pop music or books. The philosophy of suntanned non-resistance is on sale now in outlets everywhere. And she also uh, uh, provides a little glossary of surfing (laughs) terms. Uh, Gnarly, messy, hard to navigate. Kooks out-of-towners, as in get off my beach, and shred to rip through a wave. Soul surfers do not shred. That's just one of the, the definitions. There's also a piece, Richard, slightly with you in mind, that she wrote in 2007 about Phil Spector and Tom Wolfe, which is uh, which is worth mentioning. She actually mentions a much longer piece that's about to come out in The Independent, but I don't know if it ever did, called Death Behind the Wall of Sound. This is after the murder of uh, Lana Clarkson. And it's a really interesting piece because she sort of slightly says that, not that Tom Wolfe is responsible for Lana Clarkson's death, but his famous tycoon of teen piece, she calls it the, the go-to piece on the man, spawning an Ozymandias of coverage in which hordes of unthinking scribes have taken everything Spectre has ever <laughs> said and done at face value. I am it's, putting my hand up there. Yeah, well, me too. I mean, because that piece was so definitive, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, just, was. it started the cult of Phil cult Spectre. Of and, then, and he was able to get away with a lot of shit mm. culminating in that appalling yes, I mean, You know, we recently um, put that big two-part Roy Carr interview mm. with, with him from the NME from... Yeah, cover of enemy. He's pointing a gun that's, through the window. That, that's right. Yeah. Rolls. Uh, yeah. And it, it sort of, you know, you you you, you really, and, and that's the house where all of that happened, where she was killed, and so on and so forth. And and he, you know, he's clearly deranged. He's claiming that he produced all the Beatles records. And George Martin had was just an arranger, and they were all his productions. And it's it's just extraordinary stuff. I mean, the guy was completely deranged. And Roy Carr, you can feel, is really uneasy. You know, this is a big interview he's doing, and he's sitting in this room which is completely dark, except for a, a fish tank illuminating yeah. it. And, you know, and Phil has his guns. Sure, sure. I mean, it's completely deranged isn't quite right. He was semi-deranged. Okay. And that's, and <laughs> which that's, is even worse. And that's what, yes, that's yeah, what okay. made it so dangerous. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, the bit that wasn't deranged was fascinating, you know, warm, rather sentimental. Mm-hmm. He had a great memory. The deranged person had a memory that invented everything. Yes. He claimed to me that he produced all Elvis's records, you know, pretty much <laughs> yeah, going sure. back to Heartbreak Hotel. Right. Yeah. Um, and we should uh, mention that you wrote the first book on Spectre. I mean, we yes, had Mick Brown in uh, maybe 18 months ago to talk about partly about his Spectre book. Yeah. Um, but yours, I read when it yes. came out, out of his head, yeah, um, was a fantastic introduction to Spectre. How do you look back on that now? Um, <laughs> uh, I still listen to the records. The records still sound great, yeah. whatever the man did or yeah. was. 
you know, we could talk about the new version of All Things Must Pass, where they've tried to despectorize it. Yes. And I think that may be something to do with what Spectre eventually did and what happened to him. You know, they're, sort of, they're kind of detoxifying it. Um, to me, you know, it's, um, it sounds like demos. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because Paul McCartney hated publicly hated for years what Spectre had done Let It Be, oh. and then recently released a stripped-down, despectorized version, and it's dreadful. Yeah, but I can understand McCartney, because he thought he'd recorded these songs in the film oh, yes. and then they were to be, yeah, and yes. then Lennon gave them, and, and Harrison yeah. gave them to Spectre. True, yes, that's Spectre, a different Yes, thing, it's a very different yes, thing. Okay, yeah. Whereas with, with All Things Must Pass, you know, Spectre was working with the Harrison. beginning. Yeah. And, you know, if George Harrison had wanted... Something to sound like plastic o- the Plastic Ono band. <laughs> you asked for it. Yeah, yeah. Spectre could have I given mean, him. I think Awaiting yeah, yeah. on You All is one of the great Spectre yeah. recordings. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely yeah. 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 magnificent. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, to me, what they've done with it is just a question of idle hands, you know, yeah, yeah. no proper job. You know, yeah. you know, that's what can we do? You know? yeah. But your um, book was, the, was it the first, I mean, it, it told you a bit, it told you a lot about Spectre's process. And it was the first time I remember reading about, you know, three pianos in the studio. Yeah. Jeff Barry told me all that. I got, I, I got Jeff Barry to describe how a Phil Spectre uh, record was made. And was that the first time anyone had actually Pretty talked much about gone, that? Pretty much gone into detail about yeah, it, how, yeah. how many bases and, like, and what the guitar really? what the, is this, and, you know, this possible? Five or six acoustic guitars just playing the chords. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what you start. One guy with. doing the backbeat yes. on, yeah. the, on a, the E string yeah. of his guitar um, as well. And the funny addendum to that is that before Waterloo, Abba was stuck for an idea, uh, and the guy who was their engineer, not their producer, went out one day and walked into a second-hand bookshop and found my book about Spectre. No. This is it. He says this. He this says is, he does this say is this. In, this is in the, okay. the authorised ABBA biography. And he said, and I read this, and he read the Jeff Barry passage about how Spectre, and he said, yeah, that's really interesting. And he went back and talked to Connie Anderson and Bjorn and Benny and uh, maybe Annie Frid and Agnetta as well. And they rethought how they made records. And, and you know, used up. some of that. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. You should be getting a credit on everyone. <laughs> yeah, where's your one hundred and thirty million? Just half a percent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not asking for much. You know, I'll settle for yeah. 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 an arranger's credit. Yeah, at that point, that's absolutely brilliant. Well, it makes sense. You know, it does make sure. sense. Yeah, because sure. they had a big sound. You know, yeah. where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. doesn't sound like Spectre, but you know, they. Well, it's, it's, but it sounds different. I actually think it does sound like Spectre. If you were clearly going in, yeah. so the influence is clear and direct. Yeah. Yeah. I was. I thought that the moment I heard them. That's what this sounds like. Full Spectre. Yeah, I, 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 I hear it too. I hear it too. Uh, well, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> We've got it on record now. Um, okay, really changing. But time. your name wouldn't have fitted into the ABBA scheme of things. He's not asking for us to be part of the acronym. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, we're we're going to change 
geographical direction here. Just just briefly to note the passing of Nancy Griffith, who died earlier this week, and we're featuring two pieces about Nancy. One from 1988, which is probably when I first became aware of her, roughly, even though she made records before that. And a more recent piece from 2012 by David Burke, uh, where she's kind of looking back on her career. And I can't say I ever really got... Nancy Griffith, but it's interesting reading these. She says, I don't care to be... So this 1988 piece is when that whole new country thing was being yeah, sort of hyped yeah. and marketed. She says, I don't care to be lumped into a group called new country or whatever because I don't come from the same state of mind that most of them came from. And then she says, slightly sneeringly, I spent years on the road just travelling as a solo artist across America, whereas the rest of them just went to Nashville and went through the industry to build their following. She's an early Which Americana. Which is a little harsh. But she's a, she's a pointer towards Americana, isn't she? Definitely. I think she's done a ditch board. She's no Matrasa Berg. No. Um, but an no interesting writer. I mean, you know, a very literary writer. Yeah. She did the original of From a Distance, didn't she? Which I think was it oh, Bette yes. Medler who really had who a did a huge that. hit, yes. But uh, yeah, I can't say I love it. I mean, what I do like is at the end of this 2012 piece, she says it was quite chilling to read now. She apparently retains the hope that, that was the buzzword of Obama's election campaign. And she says the legacy Bush left was stupidity, that other people can follow in his footsteps and be that stupid and succeed. That was his legacy. But Obama is going to surprise us. I have total belief in him to get things done. I mean, it's chilling just to read about the stupidity of the Bush era, given what we've all experienced in the last six years. Sadly, sadly she's wrong about Obama. And Um, sadly wrong about Obama. Anyway, we are saying goodbye to Nancy Griffith. From a distance. The world looks blue and green And the snow-capped mountains white If any other notable figures have passed away between now and when the podcast comes out, sorry, but there is a little bit of a time lag. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, Mark, we ask you, we invite you to talk about pieces you've particularly enjoyed adding to the library this over the last fortnight. Last fortnight, yeah, well, a couple of weeks ago, the absurdly named Cliff Fish of Paper Lace being interviewed by Peter Jones from Record Mirror. And he says, the fans are the ones who matter. Those who, who can do something, perform or play. Those who can't are critics. That awful old cliche. And this has come from a guy who's in Paper, paper Lace. lace. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The critical <laughs> backlash against Paper Lace. <laughs> I'm going to put in a word for paper. Because they did a song about Nottingham Forest. Oh. Were they a Nottingham band? Clearly, yeah, must have been. Must have been. Maybe Clifford. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Fish, Fish is an old Nottingham. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, Nottingham Forest. Forest. That's all right. Yeah. By you. Yeah. As a season ticket holder. <laughs> 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 uh, and then, well, kind of, most of the rest of last week is about this extraordinary interview. Uh, Rosalind Russell interviewed Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen at great length. She did. She spent three days hanging out with them. Uh, oh, it came out alive. It came out alive. 
Sid says things like, you know, I'll die before I'm very old. I don't know why, I just have this feeling. There have been plenty of other times I've nearly died. Of course, it's true. Nancy Spongeon is just kind of bonkers. Sid is so sweet and kind. He's bought over £2,000 worth of presents. He bought me clo- loads of clothes. These leather trousers, my Nazi belt. Nice one. <laughs> um, he bought me my Nazi uh, uh, belt. Uh, so I'm a big fan of Rosalind Russell's writing. She, she's really good. She talks about they're in a cab going to Virgin Boss Richard Branson's house. Nancy catches sight of a man of a different culture, inverted commas, crossing the road. I can't stand packers, she remarked. Are you both racialist, I asked. Oh, no, we like spades, answered Sid. <laughs> Which is actually kind of quite interesting because there are a lot of people, like, recently on television, a few, we won't name them, apologists for skinhead culture, who, make, who go on this great thing about how blacks and whites were united around you know, reggae and so on and so forth. And I keep thinking, well, I remember <laughs> when I was at school, those same kids were going out to Ealing and Southall and beating up Asians, going, mm. going packy bashing, you know. Mm. This notion that there's some brilliant sort of black and white sort of thing yeah. going on there is... Horse shit. Nancy just goes on. Um, on the first night, we screwed me and Sid. He had smelly feet and he wet the bed. <laughs> I told him everything he needs to know. I put that sexual aura into Sid. He was pretty near a virgin before. Sid says, they're all talking about how they're clean now. They're off her and says, no one thinks I'm off it, but I am. Have you written that down? Then she says, in a, in a, shortly after, it says, Sid momentarily closes his eyes. He often seems to nod off when we're talking to him. <laughs> I, I don't think it's because I'm particularly boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea that so many people have been um, have their feelings hurt by junkies nodding off. <laughs> <in front> of... <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 I thought it's Rosalind's way of putting that into piece without sort of yes. spelling out yes. the fact that yes. you know he's obviously nodding yeah. out. Uh, uh, it's it's terrific. He also he's really down on Johnny Rotten at this point. He keeps saying. Rotten's a loser and will disappear and I'm going to be the stars and stuff. Everyone, everyone looks on me as the person who broke up the Sex Pistols, but it's Rotten who ruined it. See, the Beach Boys weren't the only band with internal <laughs> tensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> not a competition. To refresh. Uh, I just a couple it's... of other quotes from other things from last week. A very sad interview with um, Annabella Lewin of Bow Wow Wow, um, Mark Cooper, Record Mirror, and it's really depressing. She's just a lost girl in this terrible situation. She says, My best school friend wrote to me and called me all kinds of names. She said I was a slut and needed help. I mean, it, it, this, this is it's just it's very, very sad stuff. And then this last one from last week, which is just ghastly, Pat Leonard, who wrote and co-produced stuff for Madonna. And he's, he's unbearable. He's just, it's just, you just, you're reading this and you want to punch him. It's at Robert Sandal interviewing for Q in 1992. He said, I've never been to a dance club in my life. I don't write dance music and I don't see it as contributing to the cultural growth of the world. <laughs> it's funny yeah. that he, yeah, ends, he you know, the last 10 years he ended up working with Leonard Cohen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Pat Leonard produced right. all the last, right. like, last what was that slogan? Proud to be part of the industry of human happiness. <laughs> this has been a very cheerful... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. Well, this get, gets nicer for this week. Cause, um, <laughs> uh, so Robert Shelton, New York Times in August 63, reviewing albums from, among others, Sandy Bull. Uh, I'm a big Sandy Bull Me fan. Me too. Um, myself. Me too. And, uh, and so this 63 is pretty early. Several young city musicians have become engrossed with the possibilities of folk instruments. Not an issue here is a debate about tradition versus innovation. More to the point is how far the resources of folk instruments and folk melodies can be stretched. One of the most imaginative minds working in this direction is Sandy Bull, a guitarist and banjoist who formerly studied classical, classical composition at Boston University. 
On Sandy Ball, Fantasia's guitar and banjo, Mr Ball establishes himself as a pioneer in the folk avant-garde. He draws upon southern mountain melody, gospel and jazz, and compositions by William Byrd and Carl Orff. In one tour de force with Billy Higgins, a jazz drummer, Mr Bolt spends nearly 22 minutes on a set of spiralling improvisations called Blend that use the folk guitar tuned to the intervallic system of the Arabic oud on a blend of American folk and jazz with musical dialects of the Middle East and India. I, I, first of all, I think that's a fabulous bit of writing. You, 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 Richard, you, Sandy Ball. I mean. Yeah, I love Sandy Ball. Yeah. Um, Did you know him back then? Yeah, 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 yes, in yes. the early 60s. But I've read a couple of reviews somewhere in American magazines. Maybe there was a review in Downbeat. And I, and I uh, the, the mention of uh, when I saw Billy Higgins was on, on yeah. one of his records because I knew Billy Higgins from Ornette Coleman's. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm. And, you know, Sandy Ball foresaw a whole load of stuff. Yeah. I think he was a rich boy. Yes. Um, uh, he, he absolutely was. Yeah. He was also a junkie yep, for was. a long, long he time. Very, yeah, I mean, yeah. he could afford yeah. Continuing in our junkie fit. Well, yes. yeah. indeed. Um, but yeah. there was a, a bunch of interesting people. David Amram and people like that doing yeah. things that were kind of crossed yeah. folk. Yeah. I mean, here we have people like David Graham. Sort yeah. Of, yeah. Sort of. Yeah. But, I mean, I've, I, I've plow, been ploughing to sound people oh, in these last few years because I've already got into improvised music. And right. He was a great yes. improviser. And it's, it was Edwin Pouncey first time on with this stuff recorded at The Matrix where he's just basically playing an electric guitar yeah. for various delays and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. And it's absolutely fabulous. Prefigures John Martin and all kinds absolutely. of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. When was the Echo Flex invented, I wonder? Yeah. It's fantastic. I think... For, um, but not for folk musicians to use. I, I guess that I was the thing that not. suddenly became interesting yeah. when you took these things that were, yeah. um, you know, aimed at Richard, what, giving you a slapback vocal or something. Richard, did you go and see Hair when it was first put, put no. on? And um, I did. I was taken by my parents to see it. <laughs> um, and this Maureen O'Grady is being Paul Nicholas was a star of it and for Rave 1969. He said, "We get people sitting in the gallery shining torches during the dimly lit nude scene." Honestly. Um, I mean, you know, it was absolutely extraordinary. My parents took me along to the Shaftesbury Theatre. Just, to, just yeah. to embarrass you, presumably. I was fairly yeah. embarrassed. Yeah, I'm not yeah. the sun shine in. Shaken by being asked if I went to see it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I can't imagine anything I'd yeah. <laughs> less, less, less likely to go no. to see Ain't no, got no. no. I'd rather go I to got the life. Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's revived, yeah. we'll make sure we'll take the drag riches. We'll treat you to tickets. Um, John Lennon, interviewed by Richard York, Rolling Stone, 1970. And this is actually quite good because he's not talking his, bol- his political bollocks because he... That time he was in his great peace thing. You remember we were talking about the other day about how this is the year one after peace or whatever it is. You know, um, This one is actually talking about music and the Beatles. We wrote some good stuff together. We also wrote a lot of rubbish. And I prefer it with three songwriters. And he says, I think each album since Pepper has been better. People just have this dream about Pepper. And it's good for them. Which I think is kind of, actually quite a good take. And I, I'm, I'm sort of inclined to mm. agree with him. He says, when you think back on Pepper, what do you remember? Just a day in the life. Mm. Which, mm. you know, it's, he's got a point, I think. You know, I don't know. Lastly, Buck Owens to Ian Dove, New York Times, 1974. New York with Broadway and all got to thinking they were too sophisticated for country music. The people were afraid to get manure on their boots, afraid country music might smell up the place. <laughs> 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 
fabulous. That, that's, yeah. really, that, that's the two Americas, really, yeah. in, one, yeah. in one quote, isn't it? Um, Ian, it Ian Dove was an interesting guy. He was yeah. English, went to live in America, that's right. and was a billboard correspondent. Yeah. Yeah. And wrote, wrote for the Melody Maker occasionally, I think. Right. Um, yeah. No, he was great, and he married Lisa Lescu, who's um, another music writer. Yeah. Um, who wrote good wrote, jazz wrote stones and stuff, also good yeah. she's a good jazz writer too. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean we've got lots of him stuff because he also became the live review of the New York Times. Things mm-hmm. quite, quite short reviews of come film or East shows and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I spoke to him on the phone once, and he was charming. Yeah, he was really nice. You know, he rang up our office and <laughs> you know, made some query or something. Have you found something of mine? You know. Mm-hmm. A very nice guy. So that's my lot. Is that your lot? Mm. Well, in the interest of time, we'll probably wrap up, but I will just mention this one thing, because when you came in, Richard, you pulled out an old copy of Melody Maker from an era when you were already writing for Melody Maker. I think it was... And it had Gilbert O'Sullivan on the cover. (laughs) And uh, we happened to have added a Gilbert O'Sullivan piece from 2007 this week, and uh, I won't quote from it, but what stuck out from me was that he had taken umbrage at the fact that someone who had written a piece about piano pop centred around Ben Folds, Ben Folds 5, and hadn't mentioned him, Gilbert O'Sullivan. <laughs> and he was very miffed about this. And so he comes across in this interview as, as one of those old guys who's really not selling... I've heard at least two of our writers say that he was one of the most unple- unpleasant people they got to interview. <laughs> So if you're listening, Gilbert, (laughs) (laughs) or Raymond, as because he was born Raymond O'Sullivan, Gilbert was this sort of was the character he invented. Gordon Mills. Gordon Mills. Gordon Mills. Right. Okay. You couldn't avoid him for about two years in the. No. Nothing rhymed. Always hated him. He was one of those people like Leo Sayer who suddenly turned up on the cover of the Melody Maker and I was working there. Why did this happen? And then you thought, well, actually, I don't want to inquire too deeply into it. <laughs> just didn't look. You looked away. Yeah, because yeah. there, you know, there was certainly a, at least a lunch involved. <laughs> Sorry, the worst of those I remember was Leo Sayer, later on in his career, appeared on the cover of The Melody Maker dressed in a kind of sort of 20s look. And it was the headline, it was Leo's Gatsby look. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> what? If I remember rightly, it was a T-shirt with the bow tie printed on it. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, not something Jay Gatsby. I, 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 I like the fact that Martin yeah. remembers this. <laughs> I do like that image of Leo Sayers burned in my I'd say the American equivalent was Don McLean, was very much the sort of the American equivalent in certain ways, and apparently he's equally unpleasant as well, another deeply unpleasant man. It's all good to know these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Leo, Leo Sayer did turn up once that... Scribblers, pluckers, and thumpers lunch. Were you, were you there that that Christmas? No. Okay. Yeah. And I remember he jumped up and and he was quite attention seeking. Did he sing? He didn't sing. No. And he wasn't sing? wearing a little bow tie. <laughs> but he'd get up and sort of talk about being Leo or something. Being mainly about being Leo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was acting like he was a living legend. Um, 
So anyway, well, look, I think that's brought us to the end of the episode. Absolutely. And we, we will go out with, a, with another clip, but it just remains for me, for all of us, to thank you so much for coming in and talking about great two pleasure. things particularly that you, you and I love. And <laughs> one thing that Mark and I also <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you want to know the truth about Laura Nero, Martin and Mark, <laughs> read, read Barney's beautiful chapter on her in his new I'm looking book. forward oh, to that. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very kind. Did I twist your arm when you came in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did make you that uh, double macchiato. I must have what did it. Anyway, um, you know, it's always great That's to see brilliant. Richard. Um, Thank you. An honour to have you here. So thanks for coming in. And uh, we will be back in uh, two weeks yep. with Simon Reynolds. Oh. A journalist from a different era. I so, that. But that won't be in this office. It will be back on, back in Zoom world. Because he's in Pasadena. Anyway, till then. Um, the last clip's like going to be the last clip's going to be Mike Love talking about brother records and why they didn't sign on other people and so on and so forth. This is pretty good stuff. Mm. And on a happy note, ta ta. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go near the water Don't you think it's sad What's happened to the water Our water's going bad Tell me about Brother Records and who else is on it. Nobody. Okay. Used to, we had the flame there for a while. Right. But, but, we, but we, that was just a glorified label deal. It was a logo, if you know what that means. There, a logo. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Why haven't RIP. you um, got anybody else? What's the point of having a label which is only you? What you Didn't know? Did you ever hear that song, The Holland Out, only with you? <laughs> yeah, you're evading the question again. <laughs> well, why? I mean, because we spent enough time doing Beach Boys on tour and studios and stuff. Why the hell would we want to spend the rest of our lives promoting other, producing other people? Carl Wilson wants to. Besides that, we didn't have the mechanics. We didn't have the proper uh, management and promotion people with us around us at that time. We had a couple of leeches and frauds and ne'er-do-wells. And so uh, the ideas that we had to develop Brother Records and stuff, which were very good ideas, were never translated into sound business practice and, and you know, we never got in, immersed that deeply like the Beatles did with Apple Records to where we lost millions of dollars. <laughs> Thank God. That was Mike Love in conversation with John Tobler in 1976, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Richard Williams. Find his blog at thebluemoment.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier. And the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Don't go near the water.